0: Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 85, this is the. We we are, of course, still uh, in our series in the Psalms, and over the Advent and Christmas season, we are in something of a mini series. And that is that historically, in what's called the lectionary, which I won't bother you with all of what that is just for time's sake, but uh, we'll just suffice it to say that in some Christian traditions, there are four Psalms, especially that are thought of as as appropriate for the Advent season. And one of them is is Psalm 85, which is a psalm for revival and for reformation. We're going to talk about both of those things this morning. And so um, these these psalms of Advent that are getting special focus this Sunday and for the next two are psalms that... uh, they contain the language of longing, of expectation, of waiting, of need, of darkness, uh, and, then, and then light. Uh, and so this is, this is a text, you're going to hear it in the text, about uh, revival and restoration and waiting for the Lord in these things. And um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. And... Uh, I don't have the, uh, all of the texts arranged in the, in the slides today, so I would encourage you to have a, a Bible open in front of you because we're really not going to leave Psalm 85. That's really going to be home base for us, uh, but I might be jumping around to different verses at different times. Jeremiah, do, do your best, but I've told them to have a Bible open in front of them, so they'll forgive you if you're, uh, if you're a bit behind. So this is, uh, this is the Lord's Word. This is Psalm 85. To the choir master, which means they probably sung it a lot, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other faithfulness springs up from the ground righteousness looks down from the sky yes the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away this is the word of the Lord and again we say thanks be to God and so, as I said, this is a text about revival. Revive us, the psalmist cries out. And as I'm going to show you in a moment, it is also a psalm about reformation. So I want to talk to you a bit this morning about those two terms. And I really think all of us uh, as, a, as, a, as a church, as a congregation, as a, um, uh, yeah, as a, as a congregation together, should understand and often use, be familiar with these two terms, revival and reformation. So very very quickly, by way of definition, revival is the gift of awakening or reawakening given by the Holy Spirit. So that could be the gift of awakening given to uh, sinners who don't know God, who perhaps don't know the gospel, and in that sense a. A sinner, a group of sinners who hear the gospel, who believe on Jesus, who trust in his word, who are rescued from their sins, forgiven of their sins, sealed for eternal life. That's revival. Revival could also be a group of Christians who... Well, just like Israel, time and again, have forgotten what their Lord has told them. And so as it were, their their spirits were uh, covered with dust, so to speak. And this, this revival for them was a reawakening. It is a conviction of sin and it is a transformation of life. We tend to think of revival, by the way that we use it a lot of times, as something that happens on a massive scale, a lot of people at once in a big room. And that is one kind of revival. However, I have to add a quick caution. I'll, I'll, I won't spend a lot of time here. I'll say this once and then I'll be done with it. You do not schedule revivals, okay? So if somebody says we're going to have a revival next month, I, I, you know, I'm going to be looking for the name tag that says Holy Spirit. Uh, revival is something that God does. He does it with individuals. He does it with families. He can do it with churches. He can do it with cities. You can even do it with nations. So that's revival. What is Reformation? Reformation is when God's people recognize that their doctrine or their practice, and usually those things go together, are far away from what God has said in Scripture. And Reformation is a returning to the Word of God, and in that sense, kind of a reawakening. It's like eyes opening up and going, oh, that's what it says. That is not how we've been living. That is not what we've been saying. That is not what our preachers have been preaching. And so, uh, so it's, it's, a ret- it's a return then to what God has said in Scripture. They ask uh, God, they seek God, and seek to return to what He has said. So revival, you might say, transformation of people. Reformation is the realignment of doctrines and practices so that they conform to the Scriptures. So, which do we need? <laughs> but yeah, yes. We are <coughs> constantly in need of both. That's the answer. We are constantly in need of both. It's interesting to note uh, somebody pointed this out to me recently, uh, that Martin Luther's Reformation was a reformation of doctrine, primarily. It had a lot of other implications to it, but this you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone was. The Lutheran Reformation. We tend to put the entire Reformation under that banner. That's understandable, but maybe could do with some distinctions. Luther's Reformation was a Reformation of doctrine, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Calvin's Reformation, though, was a Reformation of worship. Calvin saw that God's people needed to be returned to what the Bible taught about the fundamental, fundamental elements of Christian worship. And with Reformation... Both of them came revival. With renewed love for what God had said came revival. Because the two are tied together. And I I, I think that's by design and I want to show you that in this psalm. So let's, let's go to Psalm 85. The psalmist begins by recounting his history. By retelling the story, this is something that uh, we often do in our in our worship. Actually, you might say every morning we gather. Uh, every Sunday morning, at least we gather and retell the story. Right? We start with the with God Almighty, whom we adore, who calls us in to worship. We then continue to tell the story of after God had created, what happened. We we fell into sin. That's the confession of sin. And God didn't leave us in that. He answered us with hope. That's the assurance of pardon and so on. So every Sunday, we're retelling the story of what God has done. Well, the psalmist is retelling his history. He says, you were favorable, past tense, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And so, based on those four verses, the psalmist is saying, based on what I already know, based on what we already know about you to be true, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Let me put it to you this way. this What we might call this argument that the psalmist is making, which is like, God, because you've been good before, we know you will be good to us again. Hear us therefore, because things are really bad. Apparently, this is a fight God likes us to have with him, if I can put it that way. This is an argument God likes his people to make. How do I know that? Well, just, I mean, short version, it keeps showing up all over the psalms. Note the psalmist's absolute fearlessness to give God all the credit, if you can call it that, for whatever's happening. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Now, there's probably part of you going, Well, if he knows his theology, he knows the answer's already no, right? And I would say, Probably, yes. That doesn't stop him from asking the question, because existentially, In the moment he's in, it doesn't seem like the answer's yes. That should impact the way you pray, dear saints. When hardship comes, a lot of times we don't know how to talk. It's part of why God's given us these psalms. So the psalmist, as I said, knows his history. In verses 1 through 5, he recounts sort of former good days, if you like. Matthew Henry has helpfully observed the sense, oh, this is so good, the sense of present affliction. Should not drown the remembrance of former mercies. My present affliction should not drown my memories of uh, 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 my, uh, my remembrance of former mercies. Matthew Henry goes on. But even when we are brought very low, we must call to remembrance past experiences of God's goodness. Which we must take notice of with thankfulness to his praise. Okay, yeah. So, so yes. Yeah, so, so God has given you stories of His own mercy, Christian, and those are not for your forgetting, because that is what. Uh, uh, that there's this there's this brilliant line in. Uh, I mean, we don't have, we don't have time for all the, the sort of if you will the the theology in Peter Pan. It's really quite remarkable. I won't go into it here. Maybe 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 it's a fun for Wednesday night. But there's this line in the, in the movie Hook where one of, the, one of the children, I think it's Maggie, calls out to her brother. She says, Neverland makes you forget, right? So all of the things, all of the, 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 what's right in your face right now is making you forget what you know to be true. There's a movie reference. It's not a sports reference, Amir. It's a movie reference. Those will work just fine for now. Uh, and so what marks revive people? I want to I show you this. Go back to Psalm 85. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So how does, this, how does this work? What's the source of this revival? We'll look at verse 7. Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. So when we pray for reformation and or revival, we are not asking to just be brought into a state of contentment. We're actually asking to be brought into joy, not just a sort of complacency as one preacher has observed, not just a tepid complacency, but rather a, a revived joy. The call to gladness in Scripture, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, let your people rejoice in you, this, this, this longing that's in Scripture for gladness is one of the most is one of the weirdest things about Christianity, especially in a world where sometimes I think we consider being sour and cynical to be like a mark of wisdom. Like if you're really sour and cynical, that means you've seen things and you're wise. That is not biblical at all. Do you know how much hell hates Christian gladness? Regular, old, ordinary Christian gladness, stubborn gladness. If your view, <laughs> if your view of the second coming causes you to lose your gladness, get a better theology. Okay. Some people think the world is going to end tomorrow. Some people think we're in the final phases. I tend to think, I tend to think we're still in what a generation yet unborn will one day call the early church. <laughs> but while everything good and true and beautiful around us sometimes might seem to be collapsing or, for heaven's sake, when the, when, when the nations are getting turned upside down. God is doing something. God is planting things. Okay? God is planting things when it looks to us like only destruction upon destruction. God is refreshing the soil. And there's harvest coming There's harvest coming. Now, it might not look the way you think it ought to look. It might not look the way it looked in the 18th century with the Great Awakening or the Jesus movement of the 20th century. It might look like a rediscovery of stubborn gladness in many places in the midst of impossible odds and a community of Christians looking at one another saying, will he not revive us again? Will we not be stubborn in our hope that his people may rejoice in him? And so, I mean, on a a most basic level, you read a psalm like this that starts off like this, and apparently, it's part of the experience of God's people that we need reviving. How do I know that? Well, the psalm wouldn't be here if it wasn't the case. The fact that the psalmist is coming to God saying, revive us again, means that it is a, uh, not only that's a thing that's like okay for us to pray, but we should anticipate that in our prayer life together, we're going to pray it. Reviving is part of the deal. We will need it. That's not the question. The question is, what? What is it? How does that need take shape? How, how do we talk about it? How do we sing about it? How do we act? What the psalm tells us is that over the arc of history, there's going to be some ebbs and flows. There's going to be some good times and some difficult times. And so, what God wants you to do is to ask to be revived. That's right there in Psalm 85. But it also teaches us, look at verse 2, it also teaches us something else. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. That's where he starts. Point being, revival begins with repentance. That's where the psalmist starts. I'm going to start this story by recounting the Lord's forgiveness and the gift of His forgiveness. It often starts, by the way, with individuals and households. And so, how does, how does revival begin? It can begin with fathers and families confessing their coldness of heart, repenting of wanting to follow after our own hearts and impulses, and then maybe calling that the Holy Spirit, God forgive us. Repent for blaspheming God, for putting His stamp of approval on the politicians that we like. You see, we want revival I think we want, a lot of times when we talk about revival, we want revival so long as it changes our neighborhoods and, and our kids and our country, but revival that changes us is scary. Revival that changes our marriages and parenting and, and working and living and schooling and everything else is threatening. And when we talk about how, how revivals happen and how they take place, and oh my goodness, the the, the The amount of ink that has been spilled here on on how revivals work it was like almost as, almost as soon as they started becoming it became fashionable to talk about revival in Christian circles, uh, you started to see all of these these books trying to kind of do the the autopsy and figure out how it works and, and to kind of kind of unpack it in, in the way that we do. So let me talk about that for just a minute i 'm talking about the kind of revival that you might, um, um, I think that we most commonly think about when we use the word, is large-scale revival of large groups of people. Uh, The way I would put it is sometimes God works in swarms, okay? Sometimes the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit happens in swarms. Um, Sometimes God works in swarms where it seems like He saves an entire church or an entire city or an entire elder board, God be praised, (laughs) Those times have happened in church history. They are enormous blessings. They are enormous blessings. But I I do think scripturally and practically, he more often works in steps rather than swarms. That is, most often revival comes to a family one person at a time. Some of you have testimonies like that. It often comes to a church one family at a time. It often comes to a city one church at a time. So on and so forth. A lot of you have the testimony, by the way, of being saved in the midst of a swarm. A a big, big work that God was doing. And if you were saved in a swarm, you will often be really tempted to think that is the only way God really works and everything else is gravy. Okay? Thanks, Neil. (laughs) (coughs) Let me find my place in my notes here. No swarms, <laughs> <That'd> be bad. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, well, yeah, a lot of you, you have a testimony of being saved in the midst of something like just a massive work of God on a massive scale. And so, a, a temptation you'll face is to think that's like that's the only way God really works, and everything else is kind of just, just sort of dust on the mantle after that. The swarm is the substance. Everything else is the shadow. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, okay, you also have God's like ordinary blah, blah work, but what we're really waiting for is another swarm, okay? I would say the problem, that the, 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 the kind of shape that problem can take if you're not aware of it is that your Christian life is going to be a matter of just hunting for the next big swarm and moving from one swarm to the next, at least perceivably, I said, but revival often looks a lot more ordinary than that. Go back to Psalm 85 and look at verse 8. So the psalmist is crying out for revival, asking, Revive our hearts, O Lord. And what does he ask for? Verse 8, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So what is it that the psalmist needs most? As he's crying out, he needs the words of God. And the psalmist doesn't say, Lord, I am far from You, so I have to work up within myself a certain amount of excitement. He says, let me hear Your words. That's what I need. Let me hear God's words, because when God speaks, what does He say we find? Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace. That's what we find. That's what's given to us. That's what he's looking for when he's saying, Lord, revive us. He is looking for peace. And too often, I think, at least I know I've been guilty of this in my own life, we approach God saying, God, make this thing go away. Make this feeling or difficulty or affliction go away so that I can have peace. It is more likely God's way that you will find peace in his words in the midst of the affliction. But this is interesting. Verse 8, notice the opposite of peace is not like war. The opposite of peace is foolishness. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So here's a hard question. How much tumult, difficulty in your life right now is because of your own folly? Like there's, there's not a lot of peace. Well, in some cases, in some cases, that's because there's been a lot of folly. How much spiritual warfare is lost? How much peace do we willingly forsake because we flee to the wisdom of the world? To the wisdom of the latest theory or talking point or news report? We are a people who when, we, when our hearts need to be revived, we flee to God's words. We flee to God's words. Further, the psalmist sings in verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. That glory may dwell in our land. Just by way of reminder, it's a good thing to want the glory of the Lord to dwell in your land okay? whether, it's, whether that's your, your, your city, your state, your nation or the back 40 feet of your backyard <laughs> to want the glory of the Lord to dwell, that is my, my house and my neighbors around me worshiping God, loving Him for all that He is and where do we find that? Where do we find the light and the hope for that? Again, to the Lord's own promises and where does this where does this take us? Verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. That is an amazing verse. Uh, you probably missed its amazingness. I'm going to read it to you again. F- steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace are pictured, if you like, uh, as, as a married couple who have just been pronounced husband and wife and the groom kisses his bride. Righteousness and peace together. Now here's why that's remarkable. Because in the world in which you and I live, we are told that peace and often unrighteousness go together. That is, the only way to find peace is to discard concepts of righteousness or uh, sort of religious right and wrong and constructs of morality. And that is when you'll find peace, when you get rid of outdated ideas about morality and just decide what is right and wrong for you. That's when you get peace, when you get rid of the idea of righteousness, This has been the grand experiment that we've been running for about the last 50 years. And we are more depressed than ever. Because if there is no standard of righteousness, here's what we've discovered. Then the only standard that actually operates is whoever can shout the loudest and hit the hardest wins. In terms of getting to declare what's right and wrong. Which is so much more miserable than we bargained for. But our text says that righteousness and peace are together. That in the forgiveness of God, we find a place where we can have both righteousness and peace. And the psalm, interestingly, does not explicitly say how this is found. The psalm simply proclaims that it is found or that it has been. So perhaps you can see why Christians have often seen a messianic longing here in this psalm. God's people. Waiting for the day when righteousness and peace would be brought together. Never to be separated. Kissing one another like a bride and groom on the wedding day. And when people have that, okay, when, when a community of people has both righteousness and peace, the fruit that comes from that tree, or if you like a different metaphor, the, the water that flows in that river, is joyful, glad obedience to what God has said. Let me show you. Go back to the text. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What's the next one? Faithfulness springs up from the ground. So you have faithfulness springing up, righteousness looking down. All of this, you see, finds its fulfillment in the one the psalm points to, which is Jesus Christ. What we are are given here is that when righteousness and peace are together, the result is that we follow after God in faithfulness. And when Christ came, a new order was breaking into the world where it was proclaimed to us who were far off that we've been given God's righteousness and God's peace. These are gifts, not things you have to work hard to try to defend. You are not called to defend your righteousness and to defend your peace. You are called to find it and receive it by the very promises of God in Jesus Christ. Righteousness and peace, you see, come together most spectacularly at the cross. The cross is where God's righteousness was vindicated and where His peace was declared and where His people were given both. And so in the meanwhile, what we are doing is, one, celebrating the fact that our God has delivered all of these promises to us in Jesus. And we are ones who have His righteousness as a gift. That's the, your sins are forgiven. Whatever you feel about it, by the way, the the truer, better word of your God is meant to be louder and greater and brighter than all of what might be inside you. And so the the goal, (coughs) part of the goal of what we're doing here every Sunday morning, when the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, forgiveness is once more put in your ears, as it were. It will sometimes be the case that after all of that, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, oh, a song of thankfulness about how glad we are. I still don't feel forgiven. Yeah, that'll happen. The good news to you is that the feelings of unforgiveness do not determine the reality that God has spoken over you. That it is His righteousness and His peace that He's given to you as a gift and He is Uh, And so in that moment, when your feelings say, I don't feel forgiven, your feelings are liars, right? And you have a firmer, better word of Jesus. And the good news for you today is that if you're still fighting to believe it, come and receive it. Eat it, literally ingest the promises of God and all that your Lord Jesus means to be for you. Indeed, in his name, we preach and pray. Amen. Our Father, we uh, ask for your help to believe these things. These gifts of righteousness and peace that you've given to us. And as we continue to, uh, even just to look around us, and as we see our own sin, we see the sins of our neighbors, the sins of our countrymen, we see the world wrestling mightily and in other places gladly welcoming in sin. We pray, Lord, revive us again. Lord, revive us. Let judgment, let revival, let reformation begin with the house of God. Let it begin in the household of faith. Let it begin with us. Let it begin with our sins being confessed, with our sins being forgiven, with our hopes reassured, with our weaknesses made strong. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.